You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. Welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz. In the house here, Monday, October 16th. Fall has finally arrived here on the East Coast. And I know, I know, I know, many of you have been wondering why I've been so scarce, getting a lot of questions about, you know, the Iran deal, the executive order on health care, lots of stuff going on, stuff going on on budget, Republicans, as I warned, spending like crazy, another $36 billion bill passed the House, now they're out for 10 days, now now the Senate's going to pass it, endless bailouts for flood insurance, Puerto Rico, endless debt, this phony tax game which is undermined by the debt and everything lots of issues we want to go over this week um but today i figured okay so i was out for two days last week i got a triage here what what's the most imminent thing that's not being addressed that's important that we're losing that we're doing wrong now and i feel the obamacare thing could wait a little bit um you know, generally speaking, just I, I think it's good. He he did what he can, but it's overblown both by opponents and um, proponents just because he's limited in what he could do statutorily. Uh, you know, so it, it does open up at a little bit of an avenue, but not exactly what we would want to do. Um, I, I'm not 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 to say that Trump could do more. He really can't. You need Congress for that. Although I would say, you know, it's all unconstitutional anyway. So. Each each branch is a separate branch of government and should be able to interpret the constitution as they as they seem fit. Um, but anyway, we'll we'll get that later. The elimination of the Obamacare bailout, the cost sharing subsidies, that is the best thing. Um, that is very important. I'll be writing a piece on that. So that is the good thing he did. But you know, for today, I want to discuss the Iran. And not necessarily the nuclear deal, which, by the way, he is keeping, like I told you last week, he's just not certifying that they're in compliance with it, but he's not getting rid of it. But what's worse than that is the other Iran deal that we've been talking about for quite some time. And that is our foreign policy, our military interventions, our diplomatic uh, engagements and relationships and alliances that have allowed us to myopically focus on defeating ISIS, bailing out Iran and its proxies in Lebanon and Syria, and most importantly in Iraq, the Obamacare of foreign policy, the failed behavior in Iraq, the failed alliance with the Iranian-backed Baghdad government that is now attacking the Kurds, some murky reporting going on as we're recording here, <clears throat> whether they might have taken Kirkuk or in the process of doing so, Peshmerga are fighting back, but they are using <clears throat> our funding, our training, our equipment to fight the Kurds, the one stable ally in the region, and Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, the terror arm, foreign uh, international terror group of Iran, is holding court. They are running the show. They are running the Baghdad government that we are backing. We've been talking about this for quite some time, but it's now coming to a head. 
and and the response of the government is just insane. So we're going to bring in our partner here, my deputy, my colleague, Jordan Schachtel, brilliant, brilliant mind on foreign policy. We had him on a couple of weeks ago. Um, but I first want to just get one thing off the off the shelf because I know we're not going to get back to it, at least not yet. As always, there's stuff going on in immigration. By the way, our buddies at Center for Immigration Studies, I'll link to this in show notes, they put out a great report on census data just to demonstrate how insane the immigration trends are. So, you know, we're going to link to that. I hope maybe later this week to do some sort of article on it. Uh, but on immigration... So, a while back, and I have a piece I'm going to link to in show notes, but just wanted to spotlight this for you for one reason. A federal di- district judge in Chicago said that Jeff Sessions cannot cut off law enforcement grants, the burn grants they're called, to sanctuary cities. So, n- n- keep in mind, they, they not only said that you can't punish them you know, by cutting off, let's say, HUD grants or transportation money, but even law enforcement grants that speak directly to the abuse of federal law under law enforcement. In other words, law enforcement of sanctuary cities failed to cooperate with federal immigration law, so we're not going to give you law enforcement grants. You don't have – there's no state entitlement to federal money. Yet, evidently there is according to the courts. No, nothing you can do. And we said this before. They've declared sanctuary cities, the law of the land. They say you can't punish them. They say states can't punish them. The federal government can't punish them. So over the weekend, this judge went and said, DOJ said, all right, but look, you should only apply it to Chicago, which is the plaintiff. And he was like, no, we're applying it to every sanctuary city in the country, nationwide. Now, as as you know, and, and you could read the piece, I've said many times, district judges do not have this power. I mean, two things. First of all, they don't have the power to be the sole and final arbiter of immigration issues or any other issue. I mean, they don't have any authority over immigration. They didn't for 200 years. Um, but even issues where they do have authority, you know, they could issue their decision in that case. But at the end of the day, it's not binding over the other branches, meaning the other branches can use their powers if they disagree vehemently and say, no, you're wrong. And we're going to use our powers to go in a different route. And that's the checks and balances. But even if you agree with the courts, you know, the Supreme Court as the sole and final arbiter, even if you agree with judicial supremacy, this is a step even above that, saying that a district judge could just veto a national policy, right? One of the big differences that allows the courts to make this jump from the judicial power of adjudicating individual cases and controversies to being a a super legislature and a super executive veto power is saying that you could just veto a policy nationwide rather than grant relief to an individual plaintiff. And again, they don't have a veto power. They can't strike down policies of an executive branch or laws from Congress. What they could do is say, look, you plaintiff, I agree with you. You deserve relief. I'm going to grant you relief from this law. But you can't strike down the law, and and one of the differences is you can't apply it outside of your respective jurisdiction or that respective case. So a, a district judge cannot do that. But I just wanted to bring this in for one purpose today. I see this article being, you know, bantied about this column for the Wall from the Wall Street Journal, and I'm going to link to it in show notes so you know what I'm talking about. 
mini Scalia's or I'm, I'm forgetting the title, but Scalia's all the way down the bench. In other words, Trump is doing an amazing job just remaking the judiciary, appointing Scalia's for district and appellate judgeships all over the country. Now, again, this is not a knock on Trump. I mean, he genuinely, I think, is just listening to you know, the Federalist Society dudes there running the White House Office of Legal Counsel, and, and, and they're, they're, by and large, very good picks. But as listeners to the conservative conscience, you know that that's not the point. It's not going to help. And he's not remaking the judiciary. No president could because the judiciary is already lost. And this case demonstrates it. All he's doing is making some circuits that were already good, like the 5th and the 8th, even better. And maybe he does have a chance, actually, in this circuit in Chicago, the 7th Circuit, to right now it's horrible to make it maybe a little better. But the reality is, even if Trump serves two terms, much less if he's only there for one term, the majority of district and, and appellate courts are still going to be majority left-wing nuts, or, you know, Anthony Kennedy, John Roberts types of Republicans, okay, that just uphold all, all the bad stuff they do. So, the, the point is, under the prevailing system that we need to reform that is not true, it's not constitutional, it's not the system of government we adopted, the left could take any national policy of Trump, no matter how legitimate, no matter how rooted in the Constitution or statute, Forum shop to any number of circuits and any number of districts, especially if it's a nationwide policy. Picture, you know, transgenders in the in the military. Uh, picture environmental policies. Picture immigration policies, social policies. You name it. And no matter how good of a job he does, and again, most of the p seats he's filling are going to be Republican retirees because the Democrat judges, unless they die, and some of them will, but most of them are not willingly retiring. So he is not going to change the circuit. So you're going to have the ninth, the fourth, really the first, second, third are horrible. Um, the 10th is horrible. The 11th is horrible. And the D.C. circuit, the D.C. appellate court, uh, is is the most important. It's the second most important court. It's the most important circuit. That's where all the federal constitutional cases go. Democrats now have an 11 to 1 majority on the district bench. You know, there are a couple of vacancies Trump will fill, but still they'll have overwhelming. And they have an insurmountable generational majority for on the circuit, on the, on the appellate level. So the point is, if we're going to keep the system that they could just form shop and then boom, have any judge just issue a nationwide injunction, and they'll do it in one of the circuits that they'll automatically win the appeal, then you're counting on the Supreme Court to take it up, to take it up expeditiously, and to side with us. That's 10% of the time. You know, the bottom line is, they, they allow it to stand. And, and a big part of the shtick with Roberts and Kennedy that I noted is that they are refusing to grant cert to our appeals when we get screwed over by the appeals courts. So they often won't take up a case until there's a circuit split. But here's the problem. Democrats will only take it to the bad circuit, so there won't be a split. See, here's the problem. Courts could veto law. I mean, they can't. But again, under the prevailing political class conception of the judiciary, they are able to veto these policies. But Trump can't 
preemptively, proactively go to, let's say, the fifth or eighth circuits, which are good, and say, hey, could you just uphold this? And just, and again, the reason you can't, because they are not a veto or a signer of a law. They're not an executive. They're not a legislature. They exercise the judicial power. So the same way there's no way to ratify a law, there's no way to veto a law. There is no judicial veto. But I digress. Because under our current system, there is a ratif- there is a veto, but not an automatic ratification, right? So the point is, for example, let's take sanctuary cities. So let's take, um, let's say there's a sanctuary city in Texas, and you have this. Could the DOJ preemptively go to the Fifth Circuit and say, "Look, we want to uphold us cutting off funds to Houston for disobeying a federal immigration law"? No, you can't do that. You're not going to get standing. So there, there's no – do you see what I'm saying? It's not going to help. It's like I always say the capacity of good judges to do good is not nearly commensurate with the capacity of bad judges to do bad. So anyway, that's this. I've gone way over time uh, because I did want to get to the burning issue now. But keep an eye on this on immigration. We'll get back to it. And that is Iran, Iranian hegemony, and the United States State Department – being the biggest sponsor of terrorism in the world by 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 default by their own their own admission. And with no further ado, I'd love to bring on my colleague here. I think is waiting on the line, Jordan Shacktail, our foreign policy national security correspondent for CR. Hey Jordan, how are things going today? Things are well. How are you doing? I'm telling you, I'm fired up for a new week. I don't even know what to get, jump on first. Uh, see, you know, some, sometimes I admire or wish I could do what you do and really delve deeply into maybe one or two areas of policy instead of kind of like a generalist jumping around. But I found today, even before Obamacare, I wanted to get to what was going on in Iraq because this is really an emergency. I doubt very few of the, you know, phony conservative talk radio show host we'll talk about. Um, but this is really the linchpin of our foreign policy, what the Iranian-backed government and the American-backed government in Iraq is doing to the Kurds now. And, you know, I want to know what you think about this thesis I started out with at the beginning of the show. And, uh, you know, just want to kind of juxtapose because, as you know, my shtick of being a domestic policy guy, foreign policy guy, I like juxtaposing different policies and just demonstrating how you, you find the same modus operandi of government failure. And our Iraq policy for a decade, and when I say a decade, I mean predating Obama, and I want to delve into that in, in this show in particular, is really the Obamacare of foreign policy. What I mean by that is Obamacare is the epitome of a domestic policy where we government, when I say we, I mean government creates the problem, skyrockets the, the, the prices, distorts the market, boxes out competition like, well, we need a solution. Now let's bail it out and inflate the price even more. And it creates new problems and we have to you know go on and on. And that is the cycle of government. What you have in Iraq is, you know, we lost the Iraq war the minute we allowed it to become the Iranian hegemony, which is why many of us believe that entire effort really, especially without doing regime change in Iran first, was really just, it was a mistake. It shouldn't have been done. Um, and then because you have the Iranian-backed Shiites controlling Iraq, it spawns a Sunni insurgency in the Sunni lands. Then we have to respond to it. Then we get caught in between. So we arm the Shiites to go up against them. 
And it goes on and on. And we had Al-Qaeda in Iraq. We had ISIS. And then you had the Kurds, for once, taking their own destiny in their own hands, taking the land, defeating ISIS. And ISIS is gone. They're done with pretty much. While the Iranian-backed Shias were running away, despite the billions of dollars in military aid we gave them. And then now that the Kurds have the land, they have the temerity to come and use our weapons to take it. Could you start maybe a little bit backwards, because our audience is already aware of what's going on, with the U.S. response to the attack on Kirkuk, the attack on the Kurdish-held area, and what you think of it? So, so far, we've seen statements from both the State Department and the Pentagon saying, basically, you know, it reminds a lot of people of the Israeli-Palestinian situation where they said, oh, don't escalate tensions. And this usually comes, the statement usually comes in the wake of a Palestinian terrorist attack. And all, you know, conservatives and pro-Israel people are like, you know, what the heck's going on here? Someone was just killed by a Palestinian terrorist. And it's the same thing in Kurdistan. Um, the, the Iranian government is directing an invasion of their territory. And now we're coming out and saying, oh, please don't escalate it. You know, one of my friends said this on Twitter. It's like if one of your buddies got into a bar fight and you're holding him back while he's getting sucker punched in the face. You know, you're, you're creating an unfair situation um, for what should be our ally. And we should be standing with the Kurds and Kirkuk, who they fought. Um, so what's interesting about this specific city, I don't know if many people know this, but in in 2014, during the rise of ISIS, ISIS took this city from the Iraqi government, which was holding it at the time, and the Iraqi government didn't even put up a fight. They left our arms there, our hardware there, everything they left, they cut and ran, because um, the Kirkuk is ethnically diverse, so the Iraqis, the Shiites didn't really care about it. Um, but the Kurds came in later, and they took it back from ISIS. So that's why the Kurds have this city, um, which has historically been Kurdish and has also been occupied by other ethnic groups, whether they're Sunnis or Shias and other groups. Um, but what's particularly interesting is now, now the Iraqis are emboldened with our stuff again to take it back. And, you know, they have no claim to this territory other than, uh, unfortunately, that many governments in the world support a unified um, Iraq, which is directed by the corrupt um, president in Baghdad. So that's kind of where we're at right now. Wow. So, yeah, you like you said, the PLO and Israel redux, uh, moral equivalence, all oh, both sides need to stop. And then it's funny you mentioned that. I, I mean, I could not have thought of a, any other way to make our foreign policy more dyslexic than it is now. So we gave, I mean, there's one thing that if you give arms to one enemy, but we give it to all of our enemies. We give it to a feckless enemy that then gets defeated by ISIS and the arms go into ISIS's hands. And then now that the Kurds and ally defeated them, we're backing, you know, or at least now we're being neutral, but it's too late already. I mean, we already backed them with, with uh, you know, the Shia militias with, with weapons and everything. And now they're using it to fight the Kurds, you know, something interesting about Kirkuk that you mentioned, isn't Kirkuk either Kurdish, which is non-Arab, but they are Sunni Muslims, or Sunni Arabs, right? There are no Shias living there for the most part. Yeah, it, it, it's a very ethnically diverse city, you know, that includes um, Christians and Yazidis, 
Um, but the, the point is, is that, you know, Iraq is such a new concept in and of itself that for them to claim this area, they don't have any particular right to it. It's not like, you know, the Iraqi people have history there, like the, the, the Jews have over Jerusalem or anything like that. It's ridiculous to say that, you know, we should support it because the only reason we're saying we should support it is because our foreign policy leaders, um, since the creation of Iraq, have said that this particular area is part of Iraq. <laughs> and, and it's as simple as that. There's no real justification for, for it, and it doesn't even make sense. Um, it, it, you talked about this before, but this singular-minded approach, uh, just defeat ISIS, is what got us into the problem. And I understand you have a piece coming out on Conservative Review about this, but the fact that we got in bed with these dangerous Shiite militias um, to defeat ISIS without any broader strategy goes to show that the people in charge right now and in the past have been grossly irresponsible in not only the strat the U.S. defense strategy, but in allocating our resources, which include tens of billions of dollars of equipment that we're never going to see any gains with through our foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, obviously the Iraq war, you know, some estimates run well over a trillion dollars, but, you, you know, you're certainly uh, referring to the portion that we gave to the Iraqi, um, the Iraqi military, which, as we know, a big part of it is this, uh, um, gosh, what's the Arabic name they're using now, which is controlled by Iran, the IRGC. Uh, the, the popular, the popular mobilization forces, yeah, the which are, are basically, so they're technically under the direction of the Iraqi government, but these people, for the most part, are hardcore, um, believers and they tend to ideologically align with the Iranian regime because the Iraqi government's kind of like a mixed bag, um, this like Sharia compliant project with like some hints of liberal democracy that we tried to install there that really aren't working. But if you want like the hardcore Shiite uh, caliphate stuff, you're going to align up with the Iranian regime. And Iran has taken advantage of that and essentially um, you know, there's reports out there that they basically control the Shiite militias entirely and that uh, the president of Iraq, Abadi, has become basically a puppet to the Iranian regime because he has no real uh, power influence in the region. So so we just sanctioned the IRGC. Um, we recognize that they're a terror group. And yet we go and back their militias in holding ground in Iraq, taking back ground. That's uh, obviously Christian-controlled areas, which we know they're they're ethnically cleansing them. They're building Iranian infrastructure there. Then, on the other hand, they're going after the Kurds. But I, I want to peel back one layer. This is even more than that. You're talking about the mistake of ISIS, and I, you know, I was on record years ago. What was it? Over three, four years ago, at Fox News opinion, I wrote a piece saying, "Let Allah sort it out." ISIS is not the biggest threat. They're a diaspora problem. It's uh, influencing the Muslims in the West, which they shouldn't have been let in. And to the extent they're let in, that's a homeland security problem. There's nothing we can do militarily in Syria. And, you know, to the extent you have ISIS, it was Iran and its proxies. It was their problem. We bailed them out. That's certainly a problem. But there's a layer before that. 
Why do we have ISIS? Why do you have all these groups that were born out of originally the Sunni insurgency in Iraq? It's because of what we originally did and what we're doing now. So it's interesting. Um, Kirkuk, look, it's either Kur- Kurdish or it's Sunni Arab. Um, and now you see all the Sunnis fleeing and, and to some extent cooperation I'm seeing between Sunni Arabs and the Kurds, uh, you know, because they don't want to be ruled by the Shias. And this is what we keep doing. Uh, you know, I, I'm curious your thoughts on this. I know many of our friends think that, all right, well, you know, yeah, we made some mistakes, but the Iraq war was originally good. It's just that Obama messed things up by pulling out and that created ISIS. But they're missing the point. The reason we had it is because Baghdad fell to the Iranian proxies. So you're always going to have the rubber band effect. You're always going to have – so not only are we supporting the wrong people and we're creating the Sunni insurgency, but then we feel we have to own it and we win it back for the Shias, which perpetuates the problem. And I think this is where the Kurds come in because some people might think, all right, Jordan, you know, I, well, you know, look, the Kurds might be halfway decent, but what, you know, what do we owe them? Let's just stay out of it. And hey, I wouldn't mind staying out of it if we stood out of it. But we're already knee deep on the wrong side. They're providing for us this way out of the false dichotomy between Su- Sunni nutcases and Shia nutcases. They could actually hold the land. And, and because they are Sunnis, albeit now Arabs, it's more likely they're able to hold maybe a little bit, a little more ground than the historic Kurdistan that's still Sunni rather than the Baghdadi government, right? Yeah, the good thing about the Kurds, you know, they come from a unique society. Um, they, they consider themselves Kurdish first and Muslim second, and they don't really have an Islamic extremism problem. So... Um, you know, we're not asking for a massive influx of resources into Kurdistan. I think a lot of people would just agree, cut off funding to Baghdad. Um, or even if you insist on the funding, at least relocate uh, some of it to uh, Erbil, the central of the the central um, city of Kurdistan's uh, sure. government. But, but, but they're uh, funneling we're not, that through Baghdad. They're funneling the aid yeah, to Baghdad and, and they're holding it up. Yeah, all we're asking for is is don't make it worse, and it shouldn't be that much of an ask from from our the, the for the people that have been in charge for so long. And the the problem, of course, is that the professional bureaucracy and a lot of these generals who've moved through the ranks and are somehow still renowned generals after making all of these horrific calculations. Um, you pointed out to me there was this Hoover Institution panel. And one of President W. Bush's um, National Security Council people was speaking on it and was talking about how uh, Turkey, you know, we can't break off with Turkey because we're so invested. And, you know, it's these same people in positions of power and in the think tank world who are just doubling down on policies that they helped create, whether it's Turkey, Iraq, Iran, uh, you know, powering the PLO. Uh, We really need... Yeah, the the entire Middle East policy has become too big to fail, and there's the same Middle East cartel that's still on television, in the think tank world, in government, that is still running the show. And we have to raise awareness about that and chip away and really point out these people's failures, whether it's Afghanistan. I don't know how many people know about General Mattis's deep involvement in doubling down on the Afghanistan project or General McMaster's um, Iraq positions, which have become 
so much of a burden on the American taxpayer and American troops overseas that these people need to be held accountable. And because they only face uh, friendly media on these specific policies and friendly think tanks, there really needs to be a grassroots movement to um, keep these people in check and really expose what they've done and, and, you know, what positions they've taken. And people need to understand that they have, been abject failures um, in promoting American foreign policy over the past couple decades. Yeah, but I mean, just like domestic policy, it's this, it's the same thing. It's the same too big to fail. Well, you have to keep. Uh, we wouldn't want healthcare insurance markets to become destabilized by not bailing them out. And of course, they're as destabilized as could be. Same thing. We wouldn't want Iraq to be destabilized. I mean, you can't get worse than. And I think you mentioned an interesting point. See, we're not big interventionists here. We're not asking for some major investment. We're saying take the Hippocratic Oath of foreign policy. First, do no harm. Just by simply reorienting our alliances, you know, if we would spend one one hundredth of what we spent propping up Beirut, Baghdad, Kabul, who knows what we're doing in Syria, um, if we would, you know, give it directly to the Kurds. You would. They've already demonstrated they could, you know, secure their own country. They they did it with ISIS. They could do it from the, you know, Turks and and Iran and and and. It, but but it's a, here's the problem. Here's here's what gives me goosebumps, Jordan. More than any other policy, I'm scared this is never going to change because you have to recognize one truth, and that is. Oh, so Baghdad's an enemy. Everything we fought for for 16 years, 15 years, whatever, we actually lost to Tyran. And, you know, you and I would be like, well, duh, yeah. I mean, that that was a long, that ship sailed a long time ago. Let's at least just secure Kurdistan and let the rest go to hell. The problem is that would be a recognition of the failure, and they just don't want to do that. So everything is built off of recognizing Baghdad as an ally instead of, I mean, Soleimani, the IRGC commander, is literally holding court there. Um, this I, I call it the other Iran deal that no one speaks about. This is the other Iran deal that we're giving them. And uh, my fear is, you look at all the people that were big players in this policy in the military, they've been elevated. You got Dunford as head of chief of, uh, chief of staff. You got you know, McMaster, obviously, is NSC commander. He was big at CENCOM, big Iraq guy, big Petraeus disciple, um, who is the, the embodiment of what we're talking about. You got Mattis, um, and then obviously Tillerson. I guess he's on the outs with Trump. But it, the, the, I, I, my concern is that I think Trump's instincts are moving in the right direction in general on Iran. He gets it, but he doesn't get the specific policy nuances of what's going on there. And it's just on autopilot. What what is yeah, it a, a take perfectly to a perfectly flagrant offense of the IRGC sanctions that were just imposed is you have a senior Iranian commander named Qasem Soleimani who's basically in charge of all of their um, military and uh, spying operations overseas. This guy is taking photos. Uh, well, people are taking photos of him emerging all over the Middle East in countries that we're supposed to be allied with, whether it's Turkey or Iraq, in clear violation of sanctions um, imposed on the IRGC, which he's a general in, all we should ask for is that the president has signed these sanctions into law, authorized the Treasury Department to recognize the IRGC as a terrorist organization and should be sanctioned as such, just enforce the sanctions. And if Iraq 
isn't going to force him out of the country and force the IRGC out of the country. And you and I both know uh, the way that Iraq is so in bed with Iran is basically impossible. But we have the this tool now that we can use to our advantage and say, listen, legally, the U.S. now needs to sanction the Iraqi government and should be cutting off aid to them because the IRGC is designated, you know, under the Treasury Department basically as a terrorist organization. And our partners should not be uh, collaborating with them on military offenses. So if we're really serious, if, if President Trump is really serious about what he said about Iran, and it was a great speech, undoubtedly, uh, last week, that he needs to enforce these measures or his words don't mean anything. So that's that's the bottom line, is that we just need to simply ask the president and the White House to enforce what they just put into action. And that'll help at least solve the problem for us. Wow. No, I mean, that's the thing. You make it clear who our friends and enemies are. You call up, uh, you know, the clown in Baghdad, and you say, you know, whatever his name is, the prime minister, Adi al-Abadi, and say, look, um, we're not doing business with Iran anymore. Actually, they're enemies. Uh, you either cut them loose or you will be treated like Iran. And actually, by the way, we're recognizing Kurdistan. You would have a very different outcome. I, I, I watch everyone just wring their hands. You see it a lot on North Korea. Oh, my God, what do we do? Well, you, know, you, you start by not doubling down on the failed policies of the past. And it's funny because mentioning North Korea, you find the same people that literally got us into this. And, and everyone has to admit there that it was a failure because there we see it before our eyes. Um, Iran's a half a step behind. But, you know, until they officially announce they have nuclear weapons, well, you know, everyone could always say the Iran deal is working. But uh, here you can't say that even if you're a leftist. And the same people that got us into it. <laughs> amazingly, are the talking heads on TV that say, hey, oh, oh, you know, I, I don't know, I think we're acting irresponsibly here. Um, so, you know, this whole notion of talking tough on Iran, but then literally, I mean, let me just give you two more examples. So, we got, and, and I know we were trading some emails at the time, we're pretty upset about this. Another U.S. soldier was killed uh, earlier this month near Tikrit, in, in the north there in Iraq. And, you know, I remember sending you a message. I was like, yeah, we're probably dying for on behalf of the Shia militias there. And now we find out the guy probably died by the Shia militias because um, this was one of those things. What are those called? Those EFPs, the explosively formed penetrators, the real juiced up IEDs that killed anywhere from 500 to 1,000 U.S. soldiers last decade, funded by Iran. He was killed by one of those, so it unlikely was ISIS. Um, and and we're, we're backing these guys. That's number one. Number two, I saw last week, and maybe you could elaborate on this a little bit for our listeners, because I know we were the first to really jump on Hezbollah and what, what's going on there. The State Department recognized the problem. So they, they uh, put two of their top dogs on their you know, most wanted list. And then they said Hezbollah is a real serious international problem. It threatens America's homeland. They recognize their uh, bases in, in, in the Western Hemisphere. And then we continue funding the Lebanese Armed Forces, which is their proxy. I mean, what is going on there? Yeah, it, it's another case of the government bureaucracy taking over. You know, I, I'm, not I'm not willing at this point to say, oh, President Trump is continuing the policies of Obama and Bush. But he needs to 
he has an opportunity here. It's something that he really campaigned on to rid himself of that legacy. Um, and that legacy includes, as you said, arming the Lebanese army, which our policymakers and the State Department won't admit is basically part of Hezbollah. Um, the leader in Lebanon, whose father was actually killed by a Hezbollah terrorist, is subject to the whims of the Hezbollah military leaders who are in complete control of his government. You saw this when the leader of Lebanon came into the United States and President Trump said, we're going to go after Hezbollah and we support Iran's efforts against them. And if you notice, the leader uh, Hariri of, of uh, Lebanon, he never said anything about Hezbollah because he knew that Hezbollah was really, is really in charge in Lebanon. And that's just one case um, of our Middle East foreign policy not catching up to reality. And of course, you see it on Iraq, you see it in Israel. Um, but it's so important for President Trump at this moment to recognize that, you know, he campaigned against the Iraq war and further involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think you were right. He's instinctually correct that there's something he sees there's something off here. And he doesn't need to be part of this State Department, Pentagon, uh, doubling down, tripling down, sending billions of dollars, trillions of dollars into the region to prop up lost causes because a lot of the people in charge are just so invested in making it work to the detriment of U.S. soldiers and U.S. foreign policy. So, you know, it's unfortunately going to take the president to make a decision unilaterally to, uh, to try to fix the situation. Um, but it's important for us, um, you know, the conservatives grassroots and for us that recognize what a disaster our foreign policy could become if the president continues down this path. We really need to do our best to, um, you know, call our congressmen, our senators, a lot of whom get it on these issues and, and make sure that, you know, they, they hold the, the president accountable and really ask him, does he want to be part of this disastrous Middle East legacy? Well, that, that that's also a big problem. I mean, Congress used to have their own foreign policy shop, their own stream of intel on a lot of things. They've just ceded it all to the executive branch. And, you know, again, a lot of people ask me, well, Daniel, aren't you happy Trump's doing the better? Again, they're missing the point. I think we talk about this all the time in Conservative Review. What is Trump? <laughs> what is the Trump administration? He gets certain things. He gets the big ticket items, the taxes, the Obamacare, the ISIS, the, um, yeah. you know, the DACA, the Iran deal. But the, the nuances that the one plus one equals two is what he doesn't get. Um, and, and that's why. And again, even even some conservatives, even even Ted Cruz. And now I know he I think he gets it privately, but on the campaign trail, ISIS, 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 they, they were you know, the threat is jihad is Islamic um, supremacism. But they, they were making that synonymous and exclusive to ISIS. But the truth be told, ISIS is done with. I mean, Raqqa pretty much has fallen, it seems. Um, certainly in Iraq, they're beaten back. It doesn't exist. Iran is the whole problem. It's funny, you know, it, it wasn't so much a strategic threat that, that got us involved because they were never a big strategic threat to us. It was the gruesome nature of the videos. Um, you know, but that doesn't deter foreign policy. But you want to talk about that. I'm just seeing as we're talking on social media now, um, you know, there's reports, we have to verify them, that 
uh, some of the Kurdish Peshmerga, you know, soldiers there were beheaded by these PMF uh, Iraqi soldiers. I mean, these are the people that are, yeah. um, and, and particularly the special ops are the ones leading this. You know, the, the, they're going to be the lead ones. Uh, they were trained by our military for years. Uh, this is unbelievable. We, we have met the enemy and it is us. It, the Shiite militias are, are especially... There's been so many instances of that you can look up online of their horrific acts of barbarism, and they are the the the, the ISIS Al Qaeda of of the Shiites. A lot of these groups. Um, the only reason why they joined our a lot of them joined our coalition to defeat ISIS is because it served their interests, of course, because it helped with their client um, state in Iran. It helped them, you know, build that. The territorial sphere of influence and expand it west westward. So the and if you see, um, there's also a lot of videos about Shiite militias. They really hate the United States and and they they completely trash us and they they, they want nothing to do with the Americans. So a lot, a lot of people are saying, you know, oh these these militias, they some of them might be loyal to Iraq, but maybe they're America friendly, but they are motivated by a, a lot of these groups, I don't want to say all of them, but they're motivated by this sectarian bloodlust um, that we should never have partnered with. And they even have publicly announced that when they're done fighting ISIS, they're going to go back to fighting us. You know, these are the same groups, as you said, that uh, created these, uh, the EFPs that killed 500 American soldiers in Iraq. Uh, they they're the enemy, and we need to recognize this. And that that's really the problem: is the, the Shiite militias are you know, a violent, violent sectarian force. Yep. I mean, rather than America first, we have America last. We're, rather than getting our enemies to fight with th- themselves and us be on the outside of it, you know, serving our interests, we go and get our necks between both of them. And th- that's what they they were doing since last decade. I mean, a lot of people remember the Sunni insurgency, the Sunni triangle. You had al-Qaeda in Iraq, then ISIS. But while we were fighting them, which was kind of dubious what we were doing, the Shia militias, whom we were bailing out from the Sunnis, were, were planting all those, uh, you know, uh, improvised explosives there. It's it's just, oh my gosh, th- this, this is so yeah. evil and it's imminent. This is an emergency. This is, a, like you said, an opportunity. Um, until now, we were yelling about it for a few months, but it's been a little bit too subtle. But this is an inflection point. I mean, they're beheading Kurds. They're, they're, they're starting to overrun Kirkuk. Um you know, this is something we come in there and just bomb them. But my fear is we're never going to bomb them because we're just supporting them. No, and we might bomb the right people, the wrong people at this rate, too. You never know. So uh, the, the problem really is, is that, um, you know, for so long, we've, again, it, it all comes back to the decades of, of, bo- of poor foreign policy, starting probably, you know, I guess it's hard to put a starting point, but the reason going back to the days of Saddam Hussein, who gassed the Kurds, um, the reason why he was able to do that was because some geniuses in our Pentagon thought it was a good idea to give Saddam Hussein advanced um, toxins in order to to calm him down and and stop um, his aggression against the West. And of course, he weaponized these toxins and committed mass murder. Uh, And it's just... 
this has been going on for so long and, and the clown show has to stop and we have to stop screwing the Kurds. Yeah, it, it, it is unbelievable. But this is the foreign policy in Washington. They think the PLO deserves a state and the Kurds do not. I mean, this is how screwed up morally, intellectually. And then again, for U.S. strategic interests, it's also at a time when we have so many tailwinds. You got Saudi Arabia willing to play ball and cooperate to fight Iran. Everyone's willing to fight Iran. A lot of Sunni countries. Um, And again, not that we have to kowtow to them, but it's more like using them for our purposes rather than them them using us for their purposes. This is so simple. Uh, But, you know, of course, they're they're just going to continue doing nonsense. And of course, you know, the conservative media is going to focus on, oh, look how great Trump is doing. And and look, you know, he's done some good things. Like I said at the beginning of the show, the Obamacare bailout, there are some promises. He is very sensitive to the need to fulfill the promises, but the promises are very superficial often. And they're defined by a totality and a collection of different micro policies that I don't think he's bad on per se. He just doesn't realize it. And if he doesn't realize yeah. it, the personnel he put in by default, um, I mean, d- don't we really need something it, like a foreign policy czar? And I don't mean in, in like the liberal way, but I mean, someone to do, it, it should be a campaign loyalist, someone, you know, more closely aligned with Bannon and Gorka to do an operational audit of our alliances, our diplomatic relationships, our military interventions, our aid, our training and equipping, on behalf of whom, to what end in each theater, in each theater, and just audit that. Yeah, more and more people need to recognize the corruption of the foreign policy establishment. And the perfect example, and it's kind of a plug for CR and CRTV, but the perfect example is that if you were watching Fox News today from this morning up until around noon, you would have never heard about the situation in Kurdistan. And my opinion of this is because the president hasn't spoken out about it yet. So Fox News doesn't know what position to take <laughs> because they only follow, you know, there's no, you need media organizations and activists and thinkers that are going to lead on these fronts. And, and the talking heads aren't going to do it for you. They're not going to change anything. So that's why I would totally endorse what you were saying, you know, like the kind of a what what Bannon tried to create a strategic initiatives group, something outside of government or inside government where you have different thinkers. And, uh, you know, at CR and CRTV, we're really able to um, expand upon, um, you know, our, uh, our ideology and our thoughts for new policies and stuff like that without um, being beholden to any particular people or upsetting anyone. So that I, I would totally endorse that idea that you need someone, you need a totally different organization. Exactly, and this is why the you know the title of today's uh, podcast is you know Iraq is the Obamacare of foreign policy. It's the same thing. It's the same cartel. It's the same way of thinking about healthcare. Same way of thinking about the Middle East. When some of the solutions are so much easier than doubling down on the problems, um, and and again, you're right. That is why. You guys are really missing out if you don't use promo code Horowitz to get your CRTV subscription. As you notice, Phil Robertson, the Duck Dynasty man himself, will have his own show on CRTV. We have many, many more. Um, I'm not at liberty to speak of yet, but many more shows, by the way. Very exciting. Um, 
and, and that's the thing, you know, people like like Jordan, we're going to bring bring you on. And we're going to be supplying them with the information. Imagine if Fox News had a group of committed conservatives that understood what was important. And, and that's why we started off with this today. I meant to start off the week more exclusively with healthcare. Instead, I'm, ju- I'm just tying it in a little bit. Um, Because I felt, you know, obviously, again, Trump did good on this, but not much is going to change with that executive order for many months. This is something that we could completely change now. It's an emergency, not so much because the moral you know, business of helping the Kurds, although I do believe in it, I agree with you, Jordan, Um, you know, we should put America first, but it's we are literally sinking. I mean, I, I was trying to come up with some sort of analogy for the absurdity of what we're doing. And I think it would be the equivalent of three, five years after World War II saying in order to defeat the Germans, we're going to go and help Russia gain more territory there. I mean, it's mm-hmm. I, I saw the State Department like, OK, guys, both sides need to stop. We need to remember the true enemy is ISIS. Dude, they, they're, it's funny. We, we talked about Baghdad Bob, you know, the Saddam's information minister in 2003 when, when the American troops were coming in. He was saying, we're, we're doing good. We're defeating Americans. And it's the same thing. They're like, oh, we, we need to defeat. ISIS doesn't exist anymore. Iran is the enemy. The, the PMF, the, the Iraqi forces we're backing, they are the enemy. Sadly, we've met the enemy and it is us. Like you mentioned with the Kurds, you know, back with the gas, we always give the weapons to our enemy and then we have to attack our enemy. And then, you know, it is the cycle of failed policy on a foreign policy sphere is literally a replica of what we do on domestic policy because there's no outside the box thinking. And sadly, there's not enough conservative focus on this. We have a lot more coming up. As always, we're going to focus on immigration, on courts, on Obamacare, on the budget, which is absurd. The GOP is spending more than more than Obama did in his final year. And of course, we're going to keep monitoring the situation with the Kurds and Iran. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Jordan. We're going to have you back again soon. Until next time, God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 